Infirmary Media. Broadcasting from the Bio Bidet Studios, where water does it better. It's the adult-only retro game show where the 80s and 90s do battle because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome to Dueling Decades. Let's meet this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, the challenger, dueling with true crime of 1996. Hey everybody, Joe Finley here from this cast commentary, St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, the home of true crime. <laughs> and his opponent, representing true crime of 1986, he is the often disputed, but yet undefeated, dueling decades champion, Man Crush. That's right, I actually was defeated, not, actually, maybe not in a singles battle, but I did lose in a tag match before. In a tag so match, yeah. I have felt what loss feels like, it's not nice, and if you listen to the last episode... You, t- you see how pissed off I get when the judge is not right. That's why John's out for this episode, and we got Josh on <laughs> from Lunch Meat, because he's going to be fair. And as always here on our show, we need someone to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So let me introduce to you tonight's judge, making his Dueling Decades debut. Please rise for Judge Josh from Lunch Meat VHS. Thank you. Um, uh, pleasure to be here. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, and if you haven't checked it out, what is it? Lunchmeatvhs.com? It is lunchmeatvhs.com. It is lunchmeatvhs on all social media. Uh, if you just look up lunchmeatvhs, you're going to see all the VH stuff that we do. So, And uh, just tell people what it is because mo- most of the time we have like other podcasters on, but you're not a podcaster. What are you? I am a publisher, producer. Um, I do a print and online magazine all about VHS appreciation, celebration, and preservation. Um, basically, everything from a print magazine, online articles, you know, online coverage, uh, apparel, releases, shows, basically anything I can do to preserve VHS culture and share it with people, that's all I want to do, man. So awesome. if, you're, if you're trying to get into the VHS world, we got a lot of stuff going on. Plug VHS Fest, dude. Oh, VHS Fest, yes, of course. I'm doing a few festivals this summer. But uh, one of my favorites on, on in the entire world, uh, Mahoning Drive-In VHS Fest Part 3 is happening on July 12th and 13th. It is two days of VHS on the big, big, big screen and a very cool party around it at Mahoning Drive-In. Super cool, tons of tapes, lots of vendors, lots of camaraderie, lots of uh, cultural collection, and, of course, VHS on the big screen. That's what it's all about. You know, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope you all come out and hang out. Sweet. Nice. Mike Ranger and I will be there. I'm telling you right now, we're going to be there, at least for the well, first Well, I night. can't wait to give you all a big hug. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Only if I win. <laughs> I'll hug you if you're a loser. I hug myself all the time. So, it works. All right, well, we'll see how this goes here. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't lose tonight. I'm a judge, so I'm happy about that. I, you know, can't lose. It's good. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the following contest 
will be held under Dueling Decades rules and is for the Dueling Decades Championship. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and of course, hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Duelers, perhaps you can help solve a mystery as we play some Dueling Decades. Do this, and if you haven't noticed, Joe, I wore this hat for you. I got. I, I'm guessing it's like French Canadian. It's from over the top. It's my Buno hat. Oh, I can't even. <laughs> I couldn't even see what it said, but that's. Hilarious. I'm I'm on top of anything over the top, though. So that's fantastic. Sweet. I tried to power grow the the one dude's mustache for this episode, but oh, didn't happen. Awesome. Better happen for next time. Just draw it in with a marker. Oh, challenge accepted, brothers. <laughs> All right, let's go down to Judge Josh for the official toss-off. So I'm going to toss, what do I got right here? I got a lighter. <laughs> and this lighter says, chill out on one side, and then on the other side, it is a barcode. Whoever wants to call it. Joe. All right. I got to call chill out, right? Why not? Kind of have to. Well, I, I don't know. It fits my, my soul. You want the chill out side? Yeah, man. Don't I sound chilled out? Good choice. Yeah, so I'm going to flip it. And it is the chill outside, of course. You goddamn right it is. All right. Great choice. <laughs> chill out. Uh, I think we got to start with hot items, the hot products, baby. Hot products. All right. You're up, man. Uh, this particular item is an automobile. It was the last year that this automobile was ever made, and it is the famous Ford Bronco. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Wow. Made famous wow. by the O.J. Simpson wow. car chase of a few years prior. Uh, it was discontinued in 1996. And so, yeah, this was the final year. It was one of the years where the most Broncos were manufactured. Uh, top three of the 20 years that it was in existence. It was so in demand after it was discontinued. They're actually bringing it back for, in the, for the 2020 model. Uh, Ford claimed that their discontinuing had nothing to do with O.J. Simpson and all of that, but uh, they said they wanted more SUVs with four doors. The new Bronco has four doors, so why didn't the 1997 one have four doors? That's up, you know, that's up for question. And then there was the famous joke in Arrested Development when George Bluth was looking for the Ford Bronco, and he's like, oh, no, we don't sell that anymore because of the whole O.J. thing. This is the escape. <laughs> oh, I get it. You know what's cool about the Bronco? It was a cool truck. Actually, not really cool, but one of the, the worst things about it was it didn't have four doors. So you always had to do that thing where you, you put the seat forward. And if you're a bigger guy like myself or Mark, there's no fucking way you're getting in the back seat. Hell no. The Ford Bronco was huge, but that truck was strictly a two-seater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the back was just for throwing stuff in. Like, you know, gloves, knives, whatever. <laughs> gloves. Clever pick. I like that. Thank you. Okay. My second one is a book. Uh, it is from the uh, from the 
writer James Elroy, who wrote Black Dahlia and L.A. Confidential, among many others. It was called My Dark Places, an L.A. Crime Memoir. And it's actually half memoir, half investigative journalism about a cold case that was actually his own mother's murder when he was 10 years old. Oh, my goodness. So he tells the story about how it affected him and all these things. He tells the story. uh, He hires a... Uh, an old L.A. detective to help him try and hunt down and solve the cold case as they work through that. And he works through his own feelings in the novel. And then uh, he also explains what led him to write Black Dahlia, which was he didn't understand why his mother's death was so easily forgotten and why it didn't get the attention in the news like uh, like the Elizabeth Smart murder and all these things. And it was and so he obsessed about that. So he created a fictionalized story surrounding the Black Dahlia murder. And that's kind of what led him into his whole, his whole LA crime thing. What made him famous. Wow. But it was a real story of his mother. It was a real story. She was murdered in 1958. The the, uh, book was released in 1996. It was one of time's best books of the year. And it was a New York times notable book in 1996. All right. Sweet. Okay. All right. Over to you, man, Chris, what do you got for hot products? All right, much like Joe, I took the way of the uh, the novels and the literature uh, in this because I think it's the best way to go for this. Because what the hell are you going to find? Like handcuffs or like <laughs> DNA testing was already, uh, you know, they already came out with that. So what the hell are you going to find? Uh, so January 1986, the book Zodiac by uh, Robert Graysmith was published. And the book, it was a New York Times bestseller and it sold 4 million copies in its lifetime. Basically, Zodiac covers the unsolved serial murders by the Zodiac Killer in Northern California in the late 60s and early 70s. The reason this book was such a big deal at the time was because it's the first complete account of the Zodiac. I mean, you look at it now and we have all this information about the Zodiac, but back then... People just had like news articles and things like that. Right. And um, it also inspired the 2007 David Fincher movie that starred Jake Gyllenhaal. And I think the most shocking thing about that last statement is the movie Zodiac is fucking 12 years old already. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's a really good movie, too. It's long. It's like I remember it's like three hours long or something. But unlike most of the picks that I have tonight, Zodiac is actually still unsolved. Uh, which is freaky in its own right. And to this day, authorities still haven't identified the man who murdered at least seven people, four men and three women. Uh, He claims to have killed 37. Some people believe he's killed upwards of 50. Wow. You would figure that since he was never caught, you know, maybe he took a show on the road. You know, did he really stop cold turkey? It's it's pretty crazy to think about. But the killer, uh, he named himself Zodiac himself. He's self-named. And in a bunch of letters that he sent to the Northern California press in the 70s, he sent multiple letters with strange ciphers or like cryptography or whatever in, the, in these papers. To this day, they've only been able to crack one of them. And uh, each letter, it, it contained the 408-symbol cryptogram. And uh, he claims that his name is actually written in one of them. Uh, but here's the one that they decoded. I'm just going to give you this one to give you some uh, some chills in the back of your neck. This is a guy that possibly could have killed up to 50 people if they'd never caught. All right. This is what he wrote. And this is what they deciphered. I like killing people because it's so much fun. It's more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. Uh, it gives me the most thrilling experience. It is better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is when I die, I will be reborn in paradise. 
and all the people that I have killed will become my slaves, and I will not give you my name. Then you will slow me down and stop me from collecting slaves for my afterlife. And that's uh, from his uh, wow. 1970 or 1969 letter. Uh, then he actually had another letter in 1970 where he wrote, my name is blank. And that was followed by a 13 character cipher. They never figured that one out. But then in his final letter, that's actually been proven to be him. There's been other like fakes. He ended the letter by saying Zodiac 37, San Francisco police department zero. So that's where they got the number that he is claiming oh, to kill okay. 37 mm-hmm. people. It's funny that letter that you deciphered there, that the decipher that you read, the exact same thing I wrote in my college admission essay. <laughs> Did you get in? <laughs> yeah, they were they were desperate. <laughs> it's a low wow. bar. <laughs> wow. All right. So then my second one, I also went the uh, the literature route. Uh February first, nineteen eighty six. Uh you got the definitive study of John Wayne Gacy that was released. Uh, the name of the novel is Buried Dreams Inside the Mind of a Serial Killer by Tim Cahill. And it basically just sheds light on uh, Gacy's abusive childhood growing up all the way to the murder of 33 boys that they ended up finding in his crawl space of his house. Everybody knows, I'm sure, John Wayne Gacy. Uh, he goes by the killer clown, a suburban Chicago businessman. He was sentenced to death in 1980 for the string of horrific murders in the bodies of his victims, like I said, were found in his crawl space into Plains, Illinois. It's just fucking frightening. And the dude went by Pogo the Clown, of all things. Such a crazy name. He had Moonlighted on the side. <laughs> Did you ever wonder? It's, you know what? One thing's weird. When we do this episode, it's usually lighthearted, and the stuff that we're delivering now really is not. So there's really nothing I could joke about with this stuff. But this dude is just a, a crazy motherfucker. He's, he's moonlighting on the side as a part-time clown. How many of these kids that he moonlighted to do this clown gig. Did he have buried in his crawl space? I asked the same question of every clown I've ever seen. Uh, I, <laughs> my, my wife is deathly afraid of clowns. And I can understand why with shit like this, but. Well, when you hire a clown online now, that should be one of the standard questions. How many children do you have buried in your basement and or backyard? Ooh. Up to six is fine. As long as you know, you're cheap. Right. Right. You guys are going there. all right let's go over to our judge josh from lunch meat vhs for the ruling for round one it's a very tough round i like the hot items a little disappointed there was no mention of the oj simpson workout i don't know what year that came out but i was just hoping that it happened uh when we talked about (laughs) oj simpson because they released the workout and then they released it with police footage so that was pretty cool the bronco thing was amazing i love the the framing of that and, and all that and Man, the Bronco. Um, but I really think that the Zodiac Killer story is really crypt is like really creepy because of the cryptic like the cryptograms. And I'm gonna have to say Zodiac Killer is is what I'm gonna go with there because it was it was you know not OJ and not Pogo, which is pretty deep. But Zodiac Killer is very cool, especially because it's still unsolved. I really I really like that. So I'm gonna go with that. All right, sweet. So. We got 1986 on the board. All right. That's a one-point round. Man Crush, you have control of the board. All right. So you did hot products. Um, Let's go to news. I'm not even sure if this is where I should be going, but I think it's a one-pointer. So let's do this. 
All right, so April 11th, 1986, and you guys got to follow me a little bit on this one because it does come to a point. Um, you had Michael Platt and William Maddox, all right? There were two military buddies that decided to go on a crime spree, a, a crime spree <laughs> <laughs> that began in October of 1985. Uh, initially, they had killed a man in October of 85, and they stole his car. And from there, they graduated to robbery, robbing armored cars, uh, bank robberies, and they were doing this for the next six months. So it leads you to March of 1986, where they shot a man and they stole his black Chevy Monte Carlo. And this is where the story starts to turn a little bit. Now the FBI is involved, obviously, because there's bank robberies. And they knew that Platmatics were driving a stolen black Monte Carlo. So they had something to look for. So on April 11th, the FBI was conducting what they call a rolling stakeout. They were just in the area of where they thought this might be. They were looking for the stolen Monte Carlo. At this point, here's the thing, though. They had no idea who these guys were. They didn't know their names. They didn't know how many there were, if they were armed, what they looked like or anything. All they knew was that they were looking for a needle in a haystack. And then all of a sudden, two agents spot this Monte Carlo at 930 a.m. and they begin to follow it. And before too long, another FBI car starts to tail the Monte Carlo as well. So now that these guys have backup in sight, they try to pull the car over, but to no avail. They can't get this guy to pull over. So they try to tap him off the road. And instead, they all end up crashing in this little like gully of uh, like on the side of the street, kind of like a parking lot. Uh, so they're all trapped in there. Now, the two agents that were initially following him, the one guy had his gun on the seat, loaded, ready to go, but he didn't have it in his hand. When they crashed, his gun went flying, so he had nothing to shoot with. And the other guy in the car broke his glasses, which rendered him unable to see. And without his glasses, this guy was legally blind. Oh so God. then from this point, all hell breaks loose. And this became the notorious 1986 FBI Miami shootout. Uh, it only lasted for four minutes, but in those four minutes, 125 rounds were fired between eight FBI agents and two suspects. Platt, one of the, uh, the suspects, he was struck 12 times and Maddox was struck six times before they were finally killed. FBI agents Jerry Dove and Ben Grogan. Ben Grogan, I believe, was the guy that was legally blind. They were killed, and five other agents were wounded. So this is where it all comes to a head right here. So in spite of this awful event, the shooting led the FBI to officially abandon the revolver because of its difficulty to reload under fire and its lack of stopping power. Uh, for instance, Platt had been shot before anybody got hit and the round was two inches from his heart, but the round that they were using was not powerful enough to penetrate deep enough to hit him in the heart and kill him, which could have ended the entire thing. Basically the FBI switched to magazine fed semi-autos. And then from that point, all police departments around the nation pretty much followed suit. So it's wow. pretty crazy how one little insane event like that, you know, sparked something that was much bigger in the long run. My second story, this one's not as bad as that one. Well, there is death, but not, not in the way that one was. So you had January 15th, 1986. I don't need much detail with this one. If you grew up in the 80s or 90s, you know this guy, you know the family, there's no doubt about it. But before we get to January uh, 15th, we need to go back to December 16th of 1985. And on the night of December 16th, Paul Castellano, 
who is the head of the Gambino crime family, was actually shot and killed outside of the Spark Steakhouse in Manhattan. He was shot up by a group of uh, like Gambino family conspirators that wanted him out. Allegedly, John Gotti was one of those conspirators that wanted him dead. Uh, and they were responsible for killing Castellano, which basically placed a huge vacancy at the top of the Gambino crime family. So now we can get back to January 15th of 1986. And this is the day that John Gotti was selected by a bunch of capos in the uh, Gambinos to become the new head of the Gambino crime family. Basically, he became like the dapper Don overnight. Uh, he began wearing like tailored, like silk Italian suits. His face was all over the news back then. And I, like I lived in New York, so I saw it all the time, but I'm pretty sure it was national. Like everybody knows who John Gotti oh, yeah. is. Um, and then, of course, he was also called the Teflon Don. You know, he had a couple of acquittals that year. He actually dodged an attempt on his life that year. And prior to finally being convicted in 1992, you know, he was making hundreds of million dollars for the Gambino crime family. He, you know, he was a busy man. They had loan sharking, uh, drug trafficking, bookmaking, racketeering, prostitution, podcasting, <laughs> yeah, podcasting, gambling, <laughs> extortion. It was like a one stop shop for crime. But all that said, John Gotti, he wasn't only a kingpin. He was all over pop culture in the late 80s, and early 90s. Everybody knows who John Gotti was. So that would be my story. It's uh, January 15th, 1986, the day John Gotti takes over the Gambino crime family. Nice. Good pick. All right, Joe Finley, what do you got for true crime news? Uh, well, uh, Christmas of 1996 was a nice day, but Boxing Day wasn't for one particular person. Uh, the murder of John Benet Ramsey. Oh, wow. So she was uh, killed that she was raped and killed that day, found in her basement. It then sparked uh, one of the largest media frenzies of the inv of an investigation i know we'd just been through the oj trial which was a huge thing but now this one was following the entire investigation uh lots of uh things leading to people suspecting the parents uh they end up being cleared decades later his uh the mom dies without without any uh, closure on the subject. Uh, a special came out in 2016 on the anniversary, which suggested that the brother was the likely culprit. And then that uh, the brother sued the network for $250 million for defamation. Uh, another man claimed when he was in Europe uh, to an actual U.S. officer, an undercover officer, that he had raped uh, JonBenet Ramsey and then accidentally killed her. And so they began the investigation into him and then found out that DNA evidence didn't match. So he was just lying about the entire thing. But it's something that is still unsolved. And to this day, still, everybody knows that little girl's name. She wasn't a celebrity per se. She was a uh, a little pageant girl. Right. Yeah. But but aside from that, the, you say John Benet Ramsey and people who weren't even born in 1996 know who you're talking about and it still has specials going to this day yeah let's not forget the popular theories that people are still talking about that john benet ramsey was never murdered and that she's really Katy perry now oh my god yes yeah wow people say that yeah i've i have heard that holy shit that's right up there with chevy chase Really being Jim Morrison. Yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I've heard that one. You actually shared that one with me. Wait, so Chevy Chase isn't Jim Morrison? <laughs> no. No. 
Well, we don't know this. Wait, are you guys kidding? My life is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> Chevy Chase is like, I think I said this to you, Mario. Chevy Chase is like 6'5". How tall was Jim Morrison like? Jim Morrison was a, was really short. Yeah. That's the thing that got me. Yeah, Jim Morrison was under six feet tall. So, Well, John Benet Ramsey is shorter than Katy Perry. So, Well, she was because she was, <laughs> she was also a child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. All right, Joe, what do you got for your second news story? All right, number two, we're going to go back a few months. We're going to go back into the summer, and we're going to go to the Summer Olympics where the Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta was bombed. A 40-pound bomb was planted, and uh, a, a phone call went into 911 saying there was a bomb in the park, and they had 30 minutes. The bomb did go off, killing two people and injuring 100 more. Immediately, uh, security guard Richard Jewell was named a suspect and was later cleared because he had reported a suspicious package uh, around the same time as all this was going on. Years later, a couple years later, anyways, Eric Robert Rudolph was charged and convicted of that crime, as well as two other bombings in Atlanta and one in Birmingham, Alabama. He was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences plus 120 years in prison. How does that even work? Uh, he's got to, they got to keep him alive. He's got to go. He's got to slip in the ball and they let him out. I mean, does that make any sense to anybody? Like if you put somebody no. away for that long, you, you sentence them and then add another 120 years. How much money does that cost compared to just buying yeah. a, you know, like a $2 bullet to just boom, done. I think there's a secret street cred thing going where it's like, okay, if I'm going to be found guilty, I want to have the most years anybody's ever been given. <laughs> so ridiculous. Such a waste. So, yeah, but that was a big deal because obviously it was a domestic terrorist act during, during a domestic Olympics and it got a lot of attention, of course, and there was a lot of international fair because there were people from all over the world in that place Alrighty, let's go down to the ruling for this round it's tough i mean the news was really different in 86 and in 96 and john Gotti resounds i think that you know john Gotti has resounded throughout all kinds of culture because he was such a boss uh jean benet ramsey also resounds for a lot of people maybe because it's newer but also because it was a huge scandal and it continues to live on to today um, I mean, I've never heard any kind of rumors that John Gotti is somebody else. There might be, it might be out there. I'm not, don't quote me on that, but I'm going to have to go with John Benet Ramsey, uh, just because that's just too wild. I mean, it's still in the headlines. Like what? I think I just saw John Benet Ramsey in the headlines, like maybe like a year ago or something. Like they found her body or something like that. And it's just like, yeah, that's just really powerful. And yeah, I'm going to go with John Benet Ramsey. They so, found her body, yeah, or they just they thought they found her no. body. I mean, it was it was like the sun or something. Like I mean, it was like Weekly yeah. World News. It might as well have been, you know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's 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 just still resounding, and you know, like I said, the news was really different in '86 and '96. But uh, I mean, for me, I think Jamie Ramsey was just such a media spectacle, and has spread so much. Like John Gotti is legendary in his own realm, but I think what what uh, Joe said it was, you know it resounds through everybody. Like, even if you weren't, if you were born past 1996, you would know who JonBenet Ramsey is probably. Right. So I think that that kind of like takes all. So I would vote for that. Thank you. Alrighty, Joe, you tie up the game and take control of the board. What category would you like to use next? Who? Um, I am torn. Um, let's go and dip into the movies. 
Wow, movies. Pre two point movie. See, this is, I'm excited about this round. So yeah. here we go. Yeah. Okay. Released the day before John Ben Ramsey was murdered. Um, Christmas Day, 1996. The People versus Larry Flint. Oh, good movie. Um, Flint was uh, famously charged for obscenity. He was charged for contempt of court uh, when he said, fuck the judge in a court setting. <laughs> they don't care for such things. He was jailed for six months for desecration of the flag for wearing a flag as a diaper. And uh, his court and then his famous defamation of character and libel uh, lawsuits against Jerry Falwell are well known. Not not technically crimes. The other stuff was, though, uh, of course. Uh, it got a lot of uh, fanfare. It got the Oscar buzz. We got uh, Woody Harrelson for his portrayal of Larry Flint. We got Courtney Love for her uh, Best Supporting Actress. Uh, it was, yeah, a fantastic movie that told a major story about a man going to jail for his belief in free speech. Yeah, Courtney Love's character was a real stretch for her on that one, I feel. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with with the exception of didn't uh, that woman ended up getting like HIV or something, didn't she? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Or am yeah, I just was... am I pulling shit out of my ass? Or did no, she... no, no. I, I think <laughs> she right did. Right. That. And her lover's brains didn't meet the wall in this movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, who's the Canadian equivalent of Larry Flint? Oh, actually, this is really funny that you mentioned this because it's a very uh, uh, there's a man named Moses Nimer. Uh, who run, runs a bunch of TV stations. Now, he's not a pornographer by any means, but he ran all the TV stations that were like the ideal for, you know, the adolescent kid. All the boob movies would come on like post 10 p.m. on a Saturday type thing. <laughs> and so he he was that guy. But now he actually runs a series of uh, religious-based TV stations, uh, actually, of which I work for. I don't work for directly, but I work for indirectly. <laughs> And uh, he now runs the essential, he runs what's called Idea City and is it's basically like the Canadian version of Ted Talks. I'm not disappointed. The Canadian version of Larry (laughs) Flint is just a hell of a lot more polite. It's just Ted Talks. (laughs) 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 But um, yeah, there's yeah, there's nobody, nobody up here because we will just get Hustler. We don't we didn't need a Canadian version (laughs) of Hustler. It's too cold. We get dressed. But um. Our the second movie, uh, we are looking at. Uh, we go. It was uh, came out December twentieth of nineteen ninety six. Uh, featured an Oscar winning performance from James Woods, who got the best supporting actor. It was about the civil rights movement, and it was about uh, the murder of Medgar Evers, a famous civil rights activist by Byron De La Beckwith, who had gone through several mistrials. Uh, nobody would convict the man for the murder. And then another lawyer comes along, played by Alec Baldwin in this movie, to help the wife of Medgar Evers, played by Whoopi Goldberg, to finally get a conviction. And this movie is Ghosts of Mississippi. Nice. Yeah, that's a crazy story. A yeah. really important one. Everyone should see that movie. And I remember the weirdest thing I remember hearing about that story is years later, they had to exhume Medgar Evers' body. And his son who was a young boy when his father was killed, they called him down to view the body. Normally, they wouldn't do that, but they did it because for some crazy reason, 
After all those years, the body was perfectly preserved and looked like he was buried the week before. So they wow. actually called the the sundowns like, hey, you got to take a look at this. He was reading Hustler, right? In his casket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man crush. What do you got for this round, man? All right, good stuff. I think these will uh, resonate with Josh a little bit, maybe because of the year, maybe because both of them I know from renting on VHS. So I'm going to throw this out there. Uh, November 7th, 1986, we got this movie. came out to modest fanfare. Not a huge marketing budget, so it was more of a word-of-mouth thing than anything else. The title of this movie was originally going to be Love Kills before they changed it to the more appropriate Sid and Nancy. Uh, we get Oscar award-winning Gary Oldman in his first leading role in a movie. Uh, to this point in his career, he's basically just a, a stage actor. This movie was based upon the events that transpired eight years earlier in 1978. Uh, real quick, October 1978, Sid Vicious's girlfriend, Nancy Spungen, is found stabbed to death in their New York City hotel room. Uh, she was found with one single stab wound right to the stomach. And the knife just happened to be something that Sid recently purchased. Uh, so Sid ends up getting arrested for the murder. Uh, he goes back and forth saying he killed her. He didn't kill her. She fell on the knife. Uh, but he legit was so high in heroin that he really didn't have a clue either way what happened. He had no idea. Um, but it doesn't end there. Uh, a couple weeks later, uh, Sid tried to kill himself by slitting his wrist with a broken light bulb. Jesus. And then they, when they brought him to Bellevue for observation, he tried to jump out the window of Bellevue. Fast forward like a month or so, he gets into an altercation while he's out on bail. Uh, they throw him into Rikers Island where he gets completely detoxed for 55 days before overdosing on heroin the day he gets out of jail and dies. Um, and it just so happens that his mom buys him the heroin on that day. And her thinking was if she bought the heroin for him, he wouldn't be out, you know, looking for heroin on his own. So it'd be much safer. But as it turns out, she bought like shit heroin and he was pissed off. Uh, so one of his buddies went out and they found some real good heroin and brought it back. And they had this little gathering at his new girlfriend's place or girl that he was banging or whatever. And his mom was there who I guess his mom was just like one of the guys. She wasn't like his mom. She just like hang out with him and shit. So there's actually rumors that on her deathbed that she said that she gave the lethal dose to him on purpose because she knew that he couldn't handle going back to jail because supposedly when he was in Rikers, he was getting raped and beaten and all this other shit for those 55 days. And there was no proof of him ever really killing her. Nobody knew what happened, but she just figured that that's what was going to happen. So apparently the rumor is that she told somebody on her deathbed that she was the one that did it. And it was just him, uh, you know, taking that one last hit and killing himself. Um, but another interesting thing from this movie or actually from the whole situation, um, Nancy Spungen's mom, she didn't want Sid's ashes on her grave. Sid's uh, mother actually asked her. She said no. So Jerry only from the Misfits was uh, was friends with him and said, fuck it, and drove Sid's mom out there. And they dumped the ashes on Nancy's grave. So you have this 19-month, like, completely turbulent relationship. And you get a dead Nancy at 20 and a dead Sid at 21. That is crazy. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's a nutty story. It's one of the story. wildest rock and roll love stories of all time. 
Yeah, it's it's crazy. Like the moment they met, I don't know if it was the same day or whatever, um, but she was punching a wall with her fists and made them all bloody. So <laughs> he just takes key. He's like, oh, shit, she's doing that. Let me show her what I can do. It starts slamming his head against the wall until he splits his head open. That's love, man. Yeah. That's love. <laughs> what, what a way to finish <laughs> Sounds that. like it to me. They're made for each other. It really were. Sounds like he was just trying to get her to stop, and he just, like, yeah. you know. Yeah. He's like, hey, check this out. <laughs> got her attention, for sure. So we'll move on to my second one. So we got Saturday, November 8th, 1986. We had this movie that premiered at the Chicago International Film Festival. Even though it was filmed in 1985, it premiered in 1986, but it actually didn't get a theatrical release until 1990. Josh, you might listen up on this one. You might know a little bit about this movie, I'm I'm thinking. Definitely listening. (laughs) All right. So over the course of four years, uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Uh, It was stuck touring the International Film Festival circuit because it was deemed X-rated at the time. And nobody wanted to distribute this movie. And in actuality, this movie is one of the films that's responsible for the creation of the NC-17 rating. You know, although at the time of its release, it did go unrated. But th- this is the interesting thing here, too. It was released to theater September 7th, 1990. NC-17 began October 5th, 1990. And an even funnier thing is the first NC-17 movie was actually Henry. But not Henry the Portrait of the Serial Killer. It was Henry in June, which came out uh, the next month. But if you watch this movie, and this is where I'm, I'm going to ask you a question here, Josh. If you watch this movie before, you it's on Amazon Prime. It's actually pretty tame. And that version that's on Amazon Prime is only an hour and 22 minutes. I believe it's missing a lot. And it's uh, I think it's rated R on there as well. Cause I remember renting this from Joe's video as like a young juvenile delinquent. And I clearly remember two different scenes that are not in the prime version. Josh, can you weigh in on this one? Have you seen this? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's not going to be on Amazon prime. I mean, these are, this was a cult video. Uh, Henry Porsche of a serial killer was bootlegged a lot because it wasn't available as much as people wanted to see it. Uh, I mean, it's a, a violent tremendous movie um you know i was hoping someone to bring this up but you know i knew that this movie came out this year uh so that's cool i mean not to say i'm going to sway your way but <laughs> yeah it's super important and i mean like of course amazon's not going to show that stuff i mean like it, you're right it, it brought on a new rating it brought in a whole new perspective on film so i mean super important really cool and yes i don't think amazon prime would ever show that, that. version i i cannot find that I, I looked last night to see if I can find it and I used to have a copy. So I went through all my, uh, my DVDs and stuff. And actually the copy that I have is the same exact shit copy that's on Amazon prime. So it's not the full one, but anyhow, let me just give some details on this whole thing. Um, the movie is about the real life serial killer, Henry, Henry Lucas and Otis tool. And it's loosely based, but it's pretty close to the accounts that were provided by Henry Lee Lucas. The thing about this guy is, no one really knows if he's killed two people, 11 people, 200 people. There's some people that say he only killed a few people, but based on the details of his, his whereabouts and stuff, they put that together and they don't think it's that many, but this guy, once he got caught, he confessed to anything. And there's a lot of information about the story online if you want to dig deeper, but in any event, 
he was just a sick fuck that was supposed to get the death penalty, but he actually ended up dying of heart failure instead because he got a reprieve, which is shitty. But that those are my two picks. Yeah, what a lucky yeah. guy. Well, he still went out, I guess. <laughs> All right, let's go to the ruling for this round. Josh, how did you score this one? It's a tough one. I, I, I mean, it has to be Henry, though. I mean, that that's huge. Uh, like like we talked about. I mean, it, it started a new rating. People are talking about that. And, in 1990. Yeah, and I mean, well, but it was I, stuck I for I mean, four I, years in my in my decade. Oh, but I mean, on. the movie was made then. You know, <laughs> the movie was made then, and especially like thinking about like how that movie was made and how it came out and how long it took. I, I think like. To make a movie in that kind of year and for that that kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for severity. I mean, like that's a really really important movie, especially for underground filmmaking, and um, it still resounds throughout the community now. That that VHS that you're talking about that has that full cut is is hard to get get a hold of. People look for it. Really important there. Yeah, and the the weird thing about this movie, and it, we've mentioned this a bunch of times, if you just look on like Wikipedia or anywhere else online, you're going to get dates all over the fucking place. And the the dates that are on there, it said it was uh, played at the uh, Chicago Film Festival in September, and it actually didn't even ha- happen until November 8th. I found the ad, and they don't even give like, there's a little synopsis of each movie, and then for Henry, it just says, new made in Chicago feature, Henry, $2 admission. One dollar for cinema, one one dollar for cinema Chicago members, and that's all the info. I mean, that's made. a real scary movie. Yeah, like, that's super scary. You know, we're talking about true crime here, so it's like, what is like everything we've been talking about so far has been really dark. Yeah, you for know, sure. and yeah, that's that's a real darkness projection. It's like you're making this biopic about this person that was absolutely awful, and it's actually really visceral and cutting and real. So the fact that people have to go back to it and they still want to show it because it's a, it's accomplished good good like well-made movie but it's also like super weird and bad like this is it's something that people don't want to talk about you know and and people made a full-length feature out of it and the performances are cool and like it's it's still a really well-made independent film and it's been all cut up and now amazon prime is making it i think is putting it out is, is it says something for like how the longevity of that film and the underbelly of that film that still resounds from the making of it you know, because that VHS is still out there and people still want it. Watching that hour and 22 minute version though, it does not give it justice. It doesn't feel like the other version. It just feels like a regular, like biopic, which is, well, that's a dirty movie. Yeah, I mean, like it's definitely, it's, it's definitely like a harsh visceral kind of movie, you know? And I mean, portrait of a serial killer is, you know, I mean, along with the secret life of Jeffrey Dahmer and, you know, stuff like that, stuff that came out of the video era, like stuff that was popularized on, on VHS and bootleg VHS and things like that, that is definitely in the top three. Um, for me personally, and I think like in a general conscience, you know, I mean, like it's, that movie is really important and really, really powerful. So good on you, man. It's a cool choice. All right. Sweet. Let's roll on with our true crime battle. Mancrush, you take control of the lead and the board. Where do we go for the next two point round? I think we'll go to music. I mean, fuck it. It doesn't really matter at this point. It's uh, two points to one. It can go either way at this point. So I believe this is what they call anybody's game, gentlemen. And I'm really into it. <laughs> for sure. All right. So, uh, music. Uh, we got July 4th, Independence Day, 1986. We get the debut album from thrash metal band Floatsum and Jetsum, uh, Doomsday for the Deceiver. What? 
It's not a huge what? band, but they, <laughs> if you know anything about Floatsum and Jetsum, they did have uh, some MTV rotation in the early 90s. They had uh, Wadding, Waiting for the Darkness. And um, people probably remember this more about Floatsum and Jetsum. Their original bassist was Jason Newstead, who's actually on this album. And it's his last album with Floatsum and Jetsum before he goes off to Metallica to play bass for them. Um, that is true. Yes. That was a bad decision. <laughs> yeah. God. How could you thinking? let that guy go? Yeah. Jeez. Well, I guess he's just some, some metal jetsum right there. Just let him go. <laughs> well, this is my my biggest claim to fame of this album is uh Sleepaway Camp 2. Because during one of the, there's a shot when they pan across all the dead bodies in the cabin, the camera pans through the carnage, and lo and behold. And an obviously placed copy of Doomsday for the Deceiver is right there in the scene. <laughs> product placement. Never hurt anybody. Come on. Angela must have been a big fan. Could be an accident like the Starbucks cup. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think Flotsam and Jetsam made a really good decision by putting the record in that movie. I mean, like, that's a good idea. <laughs> they yeah, called, like, the key grip, and they were like, yo, dude, just... Wherever you can take it, just stash it there, and you know it'll sell millions. Please just put it somewhere, just anywhere. Here's a free copy of the record. Yeah, we think that's what happened. If the record company, you know, slipped them a little cash to get some publicity in, man, with Flotsam and Jetsam, that's probably just like there was some crew, like the guy who holds the boom mic. He's like, man, this album is super awesome. I'm just gonna like hide it in the movie and see if anybody notices. And it was Sleepaway Camp, too, so they didn't. He should do that. Yeah. I would do the same thing. I would do the same thing. Oh, yeah. It's like where he's like, hey, I don't like that space. The director's like, I don't like that space there. Something needs to go there. I need, I need, some, I need some color pop. And he's like, I got this record, man. I'm like, cool, put it right there. I believe it. Who at camp was playing records? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Only the coolest people, dude. Only like, like, oh, I heard Jerry's got records. Let's go over there. That's what's happening. Pamela Springsteen. She's the one that brought it out and put it there. <laughs> uh, anyways, so the track I'm going to talk about on this record is a track called She Took an Axe. And it's about none other than Lizzie Borden. And here's a sample of the lyrics. And it's actually this uh, the sample is a skipping rhyme from the late 1800s, which it's kind of catchy. It says, uh, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she'd done, she gave her father 41. Now, in reality, though, uh, the stepmom only received 19 wax and the dad received 11, but who's counting uh, Lizzie Borden, of course, uh, was fingered as a suspect behind the brutal axe murders. <laughs> <laughs> Worst pause ever. <laughs> Are you reading from a page right now? Because if you're not, you just nailed it. Oh, no, no, dude. I, I've been like, I recite shit in my head all day long until I get on these episodes because that's the only way that I'm going to remember it. Um, that was a superlative verb for you to use there. This is August, August 4th, 1892 is when this occurred. Uh, you know, Lizzie was never actually found guilty of the crime, but, you know, it's still hotly debated 120 plus years later, uh, you know, who the murder was. Did she get possessed? Were there ghosts in the house? Like all this different type of shit. It's and like the thing that's crazy about this, this was 1892. And this was a story that spanned the United States in 1892. 
You're talking about people were driving around fucking horses in 1892, and people in California knew about Lizzie Borden. Yeah. Dude, that was the scariest campfire story ever back then. Like, I mean, that was the hot shit. Like, I mean, that's what people told. Because it's really, really scary. It's still a scary story. So. It, well, you know what's even you scarier? Know. Is you can go to her house because it's a bed and breakfast in Fall River, Mass. And I think it's like 250 bucks a night you could stay there. Deal. 250 bucks? Yeah. You sold or what? Man, that seems like a lot. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's a coupon on Groupon or something. Who knows? <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. That seems like a lot. There's other places you can get 40 wax for 250 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe 41 maybe 41 if you got the coupon Who knows? I, don't, I don't know oh jesus i'm glad there's some laughter that can come out of this shit because <laughs> everything is so dark i know oh we need a guy this, true true crime is dark oh dude I it, mean, it's, it, it's definitely it it's, really is and i said this to mark earlier i dwell in the world of fantasy and true crime is something that like um it's real and it, it gets super dark. And I think that's, that's why a lot of people gravitate to it. Cause it's based out of reality. I think all fantasy is based out of reality, but I mean, you know, OJ Simpson's pretty scary. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. He's on Twitter now. So it's extra scary. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> oh my God. This one is uh, even scarier, I think. And I don't even give much detail. I'll give a little bit of detail on the actual crime itself. Cause it's so fucked up. Uh, but we got October 7th, 1986. And this one, it's interesting because it's a release from Def Jam Records. And I'm not talking about, it's not LL Cool J. It's not the Beastie Boys. It's not EPMD. And it's not Public Enemy. It's actually Rain and Blood by Slayer. It's uh, Def Jam's first and only thrash metal band ever. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty crazy shit. Wow. So for two years, arguably like the biggest thrash metal band in the world, or possibly of all time, uh, was signed to the world's top hip hop label. Uh, It's pretty hard to fathom that. But as an album, I'd say Rain and Blood is probably responsible for bringing Slayer more into the mainstream uh, because it actually made it to the billboards because of this album. It didn't. Absolutely. Def Jam made that happen. Yeah, and it didn't make it high. But you actually know who made it happen, and this is this is one of those guys who's hit or miss. You either love him or you hate him, and that's Rick Rubin because he he tightened the shit up after their first two albums. Oh, dude, Rick Rubin has so many, so many hit, like, large records. I mean, I think he's a great producer, you know, for for the time, for sure. But, I mean, you always look at all the, the producers and stuff throughout history, the great producers, much like the artists. Great at their work, not necessarily the best people. I mean, you, Rick Rubin, Phil Yeah, but Spector. Rick Rubin was super focused, though. I mean, like, Rick Rubin was super focused. You know, I mean, like, he had a sound and everything, just like every producer. But, I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, I know who Rick Rubin is. I mean, I, I feel like everybody that listens to the records he produced knows who Rick Rubin is and what he was doing. I feel like he definitely helped define a certain era of, of a particular kind of music. You know, so yeah. I don't know. I'm a fan for sure. I'm a fan in respect. You know what I mean? And he was only 23 at the time when he did this. He was young as hell. See, that's know? insane. Like, yeah. think about it. Like, only 23. Like, what were you doing when you were 23? <laughs> Drinking bottles of Cisco. Like, this dude's re- like, like producing some of the most popular heavy records on earth. <laughs> so it, it says a lot. Did he produce the record as well? Yeah. And it, like, this is not just like making a record. This is like one of the biggest metal albums ever 
and it came out of Def Jam. Now, was this Rick Rubin's first metal album he produced? Of course, he's produced some great ones throughout history, but it was his first for Def Jam because it was the only one for Def Jam. Well, yeah, because <laughs> um, he was only there for two years after that. And then I don't remember if Slayer left with him. They might have, but I don't think so. I think when they left Def Jam, that was it. So they just had Rain and Blood on that. The track I'm actually going to talk about from this this record is Angel of Death. And it's the first track on Raining Blood. And it like crushes your freaking skull when you listen to this thing. It's a four minute and 51 second song, which is amazing because the entire album is only 29 minutes long. Um, <laughs> wow. It's fast. It's fast and hard, man. Just like you like it. But the track that I'm going to highlight here because it's a it's song about uh, Joseph Mengele. Is it Mengele? How the fuck do you say his last name? Mengele. Mengele. Mangala. Mangala. All right, Joseph Mangala. Joseph Mangala. And basically, the long story short of this thing was they were on tour. They just started, uh, I think it was Jeff Hanneman read a book about the Angel of Death while they were touring. As simple as that. They got to the studio and it was still in his head and they ripped out this song. And because this song went out, like people thought that these guys were like racist, like Nazi lovers and shit, especially in Germany. Which they weren't, because if you look at the lyrics to it, they're just saying what this fucker did. I mean, Slayer's yeah. kind of racist, though, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about this song. I okay. don't even want to like yeah. go, go into like yeah, further, but oh, people sorry. thought they were because of this song. Who the hell knows? But the dude was like a diabolical douchebag. Uh, there's like stories about him like smiling, like whistling songs and shit as he's doing selections to find people for his experiments. He's like sewing uh, twins together to make them conjoined, stabbing eyeballs out and like doing like just crazy fucking shit. And the dude was a fucking asshole and he got away with it. But just to uh, end this on a semi happy note, he did die in 1979 while having a stroke in the middle of swimming. So hopefully that wasn't too pretty. He was just swimming around in a circle for a little while. Hopefully that was <laughs> as painful as some of the shit that he did. Yeah, you know, geez, there's lots of ways Dr. Mangala could have died. Swimming, that's kind of a letdown for me. But he had a stroke while swimming, so it could have been pretty nasty. Could have been. I'm hoping. I'm hoping. It's not the Sarlacc pit or anything, but. But you're welcome to go and and look this stuff up and see all the shit he did. I'm not going to read it because it's darker than anything we have on it. Oh, that's crazy. But those are my two picks for music. So what do you got? Okay, um, I'm going to take you to September. Seventh, I'm going to take you to Las Vegas, Nevada. A man just leaves the MGM Grand with some, with his friend Suge Knight, and they go driving, and they're heading down Flamingo Road, I believe it is, and he stops at a red light, and a white car comes up and puts four bullets in him, and the man's name was Tupac Shakur. Wow. He was shot. Uh, there are many mysteries about this uh, particular crime, who did it, first of all. Uh, there are still uh, different accounts of what happened. Nobody. Uh, there are several different accounts of where he was shot. Some people say he was shot four times in the chest, uh, sometimes two in the chest and one in an arm, one in a leg, all over the place. Uh, some people say he was uh, standing up out of the 
uh, sunroof of the vehicle. Some people said he was sitting in the uh, passenger seat with his seatbelt on. Uh, but what we do know is he did indeed die from the wounds in the chest. His uh, one lung stopped working. He was operated on multiple times. He was resuscitated multiple times over six days. And his mother finally told them to no longer res- try to resuscitate him. And he died six days later. Um, the man was an icon then member, he previous member of Digital Underground, and obviously huge solo career and a bit of an acting career too, uh, and also to this day, I mean, he he released more albums after his death than in his life almost. Yeah. But uh, he, that's and again, Machiavelli created another one of the many mysteries. Did he indeed I'm say, yeah, and he was a hologram once that went over really well, and um, but. It's it's just one of those things, and people still talk about it. Go to a mall tomorrow. You will find somebody wearing a Tupac shirt. I guarantee it. Uh, and uh, even up to this year, they just announced two days ago, actually, there's going to be a TV show that does a live look at the mysteries behind the deaths of both him and Biggie Smalls. You know, super mysterious. Uh, a lot of ties to the Bloods and Crips, and obviously Suge Knight being a big part of uh of the bloods and all of that tying it i don't want to talk too much in case suge knight accidentally hears this um, <laughs> i got him on my line i mean me he's a big listener tight, of the so, show yeah. so he, he's on it he's on, on the Shug, line. love you baby <laughs> son of a i knew it this, i knew this was how i died but yeah so i mean that was a very big one and still a giant mystery to this day uh, my second one uh, actually dips back into the movies a little bit. I take you to the documentary Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills, uh, which came out in June 10th, 1996. Uh, it was about the West Memphis Three, Damian Wayne Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly. They were convicted for the uh, murders of Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch, three young boys, uh, who were all found naked and hogtied in the woods. Uh, this documentary followed them, uh, after their convictions and followed a lot of the evidence and started to kind of question if these boys were really involved at all. Uh, I believe it was Jesse Miss Kelly who was forced, very, uh, making a murderer style, uh, forced into creating a confession, but was considered mentally unfit to do that because he was a, a little bit, uh, a little bit challenged. Uh, so the questions continued to roll and it uh, led to two more documentaries and these boys were eventually freed. Uh, but a certain band was actually an early adopter of the theory that these boys were innocent and licensed for the first time ever any of their music. So all of the music in this documentary and the documentaries following were their music and they had never licensed it for a movie prior to the first to that first one. And it was Metallica. Oh, wow. Wow. That's not who I thought you were going to say. I thought it was going to yeah. be like the Dixie Chicks or fucking yeah. like Pearl Jam or some shit. That's a neck breaker right there. That is the double neck breaker off the top rope right there. A band with a former member of Flotsam and Jetsam, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, these like these guys were really into this story and just without question, after never licensing a song before, licensed an entire soundtrack three times. Didn't they license all their songs to Napster? 
They did. That's a uh, mic drop, Joe. That's a mic drop right there. You done? <laughs> you done? <laughs> yes. Fire good. Napster bad. But <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm finished. I was on. I was on Kazaa, but I don't know about you. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What a great collection. All right, let's go down to our judge for the evening, Josh from Lunch Meat. How do you rule on this round, man? 90s all the way. I mean, that's super huge. I mean, Tupac Shakur and West Memphis 3, oh, man. I mean, those those are huge. And, I mean, I have Slayer tattooed on my ass, guys. Okay, like, no doubt. I will give you a picture. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, is it? I mean, it's just for just fun. I am very <laughs> confused. You have Slayer tattooed on your ass. That's one thing. I understand that. You said you had Slayer tattooed on your ass, like no doubt. So is that like Slayer in the no doubt font? <laughs> There's a comma there, and it's all about grammar, baby. Yeah. Uh, like Slayer, comma, no doubt, period. No doubt. Gotcha. Yeah. But if I had right Slayer on. tattooed on my ass, like the no doubt logo, that would be very, very special. And I hope that I meet someone <laughs> that has that. But I'm going to go with uh, 1996 on this decision it's three points to two the 90s are actually up but we're going to the final round and this is where it came. it's still anyone's game my friends and this is what i like i'm really excited for the last round i feel like it's been really really like level i think you guys have made great arguments and uh, i chose whatever i thought was you know the most influential or legendary i guess is the word i would use like the things that really outlast the others you know and i think it's a pretty cool score right now let me just ask you this before we move on, since you said that. In like 125 years, are people still going to talk about Tupac getting shot like they still talk about Lizzie Borden? They want to stay at her house for $250 a night? 125 years is a very long time, and we're moving at a rapid rate that is unpredictable. However, I will say that word of mouth is just as effective as any kind of social media that you can do or any kind of newscast that you can do, because word of mouth is super important because that's like cultural like people yeah, people talk about that stuff like within their own circles and with news and media you can push those circles outside i hope that people are still talking about lizzie borden in 125 years i know that people will still be talking about tupac shakur in 125 years if that makes well, it that means clearer. lizzie borden they'll still be that'll be 250 years right well See? yeah he can't so, catch up I mean, that's like, how time works the odds are against this is a math show so come on <laughs> But I feel like that stuff is just as important and it just has a different mode of transportation, like communication, like different, different things going on, you know? And I think the fact that Lizzie Borden has lasted this long is a good testament to how long it could last, you know, because there's no real comparison because I mean, Tupac has had the kind of exposure that Lizzie Borden could never have. And Lizzie Borden still contends with Tupac Shakur on this battle. So I think that's really cool and important to, to think about. I can't predict the future, but I would hope that people would convey this kind of cultural history and information if we're talking about true crime kind of stuff. I think it's both legendary. I think it's both both of the things that we discussed are important and uh, valuable. So I don't know if you're going with my point or against it, but <laughs> it sounds like you're all for it. So just all right, it's way. three to two and the 90s are up. It's still anyone's game. I choose television, ladies and gentlemen. Excellent. Uh, okay, this is an interesting one because I actually have moved I moved this 
from one category to another, the media coverage of it and the network coverage of it is what made me move it into TV. But uh, prior to April 3rd, a few days prior, ABC contacted the FBI and said, we have cracked a story and know that you guys are going to perform a raid on a certain individual and we are going to announce it on the news. And the FBI kindly argued, no, you're not. And they said, we are going to, and we're going to do it in a couple of days. They actually forced the SBI's hand. And they found out later on, too, CBS and CNN also got wind of this and were also planning on breaking the news. So they had to move a search warrant ahead of schedule, and they arrested Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Uh. What was interesting there, so they tried to beat media coverage, but what was happening was in that same state, national media was all over the place because there was a shootout happening uh, for an anti-government militia that was happening about uh, like 30 miles or so away. And then everybody got wind of this and took off for the shack. And so it is one of the most covered raids and arrests ever seen on television. Uh, you they you got it from every possible angle because every national network was actually there when he was arrested. And then they were there when he was indicted later on that year. Uh, so April 3rd, he was arrested in 1996. His trial went on and he didn't get convicted until 1998. But uh, as we know, he did, the man sent about 40 mail bombs uh, to different people. He was considered... It was one of the biggest manhunts of the 90s, uh, the famed Unabomber um, police sketch that looked yeah. like Weird Al Yankovic in a hoodie. Uh, that was <laughs> that was out there uh, for an awful long time. Poor Weird Al, man. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but just, just the idea that not only was this a major televised event, but television influenced the manner in which the investigation came to a close is why that one is such a big deal and why I decided to include it in television rather than news. My second one is a guilty pleasure amongst many. It debuted in April 23rd, 1996 on TLC. And no, it is not my 500-pound cyst or my life as married <laughs> to a little person or whatever they do nowadays. I'm married to your 500-pound cyst. <laughs> yes, and it has 16 children. Um, it was Forensic Files where it took you through a multitude of real cases and showed you how they used forensics. And act so it was actual an, a learning show on the Learning Channel, if you could believe it, and showed you how you use forensics to solve these crazy crimes. And the crimes were batty, beyond unsolved mysteries, beyond... They were just... Some of them were absolutely bananas when you look them up and you see what, what they were like and how tough they were to solve. Uh, a lot of people still talk about the show. It was on for 15 seasons, like I said, but it still airs uh, just in repeats. And it is a lot of people's favorite guilty pleasure to this day. Oh, it drives me nuts, man. It's my wife's favorite show to fall asleep to at night. <laughs> and you wake up in the middle of the night and all you've been hearing for the past three hours is, and the killer crept into her bedroom and slit her throat. That's <laughs> not the most peaceful thing to sleep to. No. That's like the ID channel now. Every single show on ID channel yes. is about somebody getting stabbed. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like a horror channel now. 
pretty much. It, it really is. It's it's frightening. You can't watch that at night and go to sleep. <laughs> you wake up in the middle of the night and they're telling some story about just like Mark said, some stalker. Yeah. The stalker ones are the worst. Oh, they are. It's more disturbing than what they show on Chiller, the actual horror network. <laughs> yeah. Chiller sucks. All right. So uh, I guess this is, uh, th- those are your two picks. Yep. All right. So let me let me go here and let's see what happens. So uh, let's begin May 4th, 1986. We get the one and only Mark Harmon. In his uh, made-for-TV movie classic about Ted Bundy, and, you know it's pretty—it's crazy. When I was looking in this stuff up, Mark Harmon is like the king of TV movies in the '80s and '90s. He was in eleven. Wow, that's wow. a lot. <laughs> in the span of like eighty-three to ninety-two or something, he's in eleven TV movies. The guy has cut out a niche for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, his best work is Summer School, but yes. agreed. Absolute best work. Absolute best yeah. work. Oh, dude, it's yeah. summer school is like top ten material. But that's not my pick. I wish it was. Yes. That was a true crime that he couldn't pick that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it is pretty amazing that uh because Mark Harmon was like the core spokesman in eighty five and eighty six. During that time, he's in this movie where he plays Ted Bundy, a serial killer. He's an HIV victim in uh St. Elsewhere. The dude had some downer shit those years. And meanwhile, he's on commercials like, drink a Coors Light. Anyways. Well, he had to turn to drinking after all that downer shit he did. Yeah, well, he <laughs> probably had to turn to drinking because he was in 11 fucking TV movies. <laughs> he was probably also really drunk during summer school like everybody else. So. I hope so. Mm-hmm. How drunk can you get off a of Coors Light, though? You got to drink a lot of that shit. But anyhow, this is a three-hour epic. It was entitled The Deliberate Stranger, and it was created and aired on NBC, and it was based upon the book that shared the same name that came out in 1980. It was written by Richard Larson. NBC just basically stuck to all the details of the book. They kept it as accurate as possible. Uh, They made this, it was a two-part miniseries, and it ranked within the top 10 of the Nielsen ratings for that month. So that's pretty good for a TV movie. And I'm pretty sure most people have heard about Ted Bundy, so I won't go into crazy detail on this one but bundy ended up confessing before he was fried in an electric chair nearly uh what is it like 30 murders the guy was he was a straight monster kidnapping rape murder he had sex with the bodies after he killed them he decapitated oh, some of his victims talk about dark shit and we got to finish with this one so that's why I'm, I'm leaving my other pick is not as dark but when you think serial killer, this is like one of the signature monsters that people think of. And the sad thing is, investigators always believe that there were way more than 30 victims. And those are the ones he confessed to because he waited all the way till he got electrocuted to confess to those murders. So who knows how many people that this guy killed? It's just insane. But anyhow, let me move on to the other one because it's not as dark as this one. Let me ask you, Josh, how old are you? How old am I? Yeah. 34. All right, so you, uh, you might be a little bit young for this one, so you might not remember how big it was. Mark, you probably will. Joe, since you're Canadian, who the fuck knows? Yeah, I, I, I'm for, I'm 40 in metric years. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know how you guys work it, but uh, April 21st, 1986, we get this syndicated primetime event. It's the highest rated of 1986. Nearly 30 million people tuned in to watch Geraldo Rivera. And a crew of excavators tear into the mysterious vault that was owned by the infamous mobster Al Capone. And this event was appropriately titled The Mystery of Al Capone's Vault. 
this was a hype train for like months. It was monstrous in 1986. So basically, uh, this construction company, they were paid to do work on the old Lexington Hotel in Chicago. And while they were working on it and surveying the property, they stumbled upon like a bunch of like secret escape tunnels, uh, a shooting range. And then there were rumors that uh, Capone had hid like a special vault with secret treasures in the building. So lo and behold, this is where Geraldo and friends come into play. You didn't just have Geraldo there. They're, like they were really expecting to find yeah. money, bodies, like all kinds of shit they were expecting to find in there. So much so that the IRS was there. So if they found any money, they were going to recoup all of it. They had medical examiners there in case they found bodies there that they could take them back to the morgue. And, you know, rumors weren't, they weren't rampant that the vault was going to be like tons of money and bodies. So lo and behold, after two hours, they're going into the secret vault. What do they find? Hustlers. <laughs> not hustlers. even, not, not even a box of hustlers. They did find a box. What's in the box? It was mostly dirt and uh, like empty boxes, empty like gin boxes. The, the gin wasn't even in there. It was just the boxes of the gin. And it was like the most colossal failure in television. The biggest joke ever. For years. Man. That's awesome. No, it's, it's horrible. That's, that's incredible. Geraldo immediately after, I heard this in a, an interview he had like years later. He said as soon as this thing ended, there was like a bar across the street and he just went there and drowned himself in tequila. <laughs> because he just figured it, his career was over. I forgot who he was with. Uh, was he with Fox or something before? And he got fired. So this was like kind of like his big deal, like to come back. And because he was kind of starting his career out too at the same time, he wasn't the Geraldo. That stuff seems so planned, though. I feel like they planned all that. Like it has. Why would they plan such a shit thing yeah. though to happen? I don't know. I mean, I just it's Geraldo. Yeah. I mean, like I don't know. Yeah. Was it before or after the Nazi broke his nose? Maybe everybody else planned it and he didn't know. Maybe he was the only one that wasn't in cahoots on it because he was sold, man. He thought there was going to be some shit there. And yeah, well, they're daisy training him for sure. Like, hey, go in there and just do what you do. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I hate myself. Tequila. <laughs> so, yeah, so those are my two picks. We got the, uh, the movie about Ted Bundy, of course, one of the uh, most notorious serial killers of all time. And then the mystery of Al Capone's vault. And the mystery is there was nothing in the motherfucker. Wow. But 30 million people wasted two hours of their life <laughs> watching that. All right, Josh. Championship battle. It all comes down to this. This is huge. This is huge. I want just a recap of both, please. Just, just so I can fully formulate it, please. Just give me a two-sentence recap of both things that both people talked about. Please. Okay. Uh, so my main one, the uh, arrest of the Unabomber. Think about another time when you have had such a publicized manhunt and then actually got to see the culmination of the manhunt on live television. 
That does not occur. You usually get the news at 11 o'clock that the FBI or the CIA has closed in on them and now he's, you know, he's already behind bars awaiting indictment. You got to see him carried out in handcuffs in his gross beard and all that good stuff. Uh, and you, it was the actual crime being witnessed or the actual criminal being witnessed. Uh, forensic files, again, just a, an experience, experiment in actual crimes and learning at a much deeper beyond detective level how they get solved. It was the real version of CSI where, you know, take all, take all the bullshit out of CSI and then attach it to real crimes. And some of which seem so crazy that they were written by the people from CSI and put that on for 15 years and have people still clamoring for it on Got television. It. Got it. Man, that was the longest two words ever. I'll, I'll go short with this one. Biggest mobster of all time, world renowned. Everybody knows Al Capone and the most notorious serial killer of all time in Ted Bundy. I got to think. My Ted's better than his Ted. Not in a good way. Yeah, but my Ted was the real Ted. Who's Ted? Ted. <laughs> <laughs> Ted's not here, man. Hey, man. Ted's <laughs> not here. Your Ted was so bo important, he had to be played by a guy who could only get TV movies at the time. Dude, he was in summer school at the same time, bro. <laughs> I am definitely, like, torn between Mark Harmon and Unabomber. So is this what's happening right now? You're shitting on Geraldo? I mean, Geraldo is fake, dude. Come on. I mean, I will go on this podcast and say, like, do you think those talk shows were real i mean jerry springer took over talk shows it wasn't real they didn't make up the old lexicon hotel and all the tunnels and everything but they wrote they actually they had that. to that write was really all that there. stuff they were like counting on it. they were like counting on subscribers and counting on people but why would they let them down it's a really really interesting perspective like why would you let all those people down yeah if it was fake wouldn't you throw something in there because they have to like validate it they have to say something is real. So would they start this incredible lie? I don't know. This is very difficult. You have made incredible stances on these histories. Geraldo is very tempting. I think at the end of the day, you got to look at it like this because I've, I've judged before. And I see where you're going. You're like trying to pick like one particular thing in each round that's heavier than all the other ones. It comes to a point where you got to like put things together. If there's four... If two wash out, then you got to compare the other two. Well, I'm looking at it as a, as a basis of like, what are your two arguments combined as opposed to these other two arguments combined? And I really feel like Unabomber has resounded. Like, I know some people still remember like what the Unabomber is and it makes people feel uncomfortable. Like, it's not a joke anymore. Like, it's like, if you put your hood up with some aviators, you're like, um, the Unabomber and people will get it like offended. And you're like, oh, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. Like, people don't make that More joke. offensive than Ted Bundy having sex with a dead body? Yeah. People, I mean, yes. Good point. But that's good. It is a good point. But people dressing up as a Geraldo at a Halloween party, not that offensive. But I will say I would love to see Unabomber and Geraldo on Celebrity Deathmatch, if that is a thing. <laughs> He could buy a uh, Geraldo could box now, I think. So watch out. Oh my God. You're right. I'm going to go with Unabomber though. Cause it's Unabomber is just, he is a national terror. You know what I mean? He's a national terror. And like that was 1996. So that's almost 15 years ago. Incredible. Super scary.
and everybody was making fun of it because they were uncomfortable. Wait, did you just say 1996 was 15 years ago? 1996 was... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, what year do you think it is? He was arrested 23 years ago. <laughs> no, that's insane. Dude, that's insane. I know... He does watch a lot of VHS. I do, so. I do. Um, <laughs> is that embarrassing? I don't even know. Like, It doesn't even feel like that long ago. That, that's why it wins, though, is because it still feels pretty fresh. And it's still kind of scary. Like, if I saw somebody come in with a beard and aviators and, like, wearing wearing a gray hoodie, I'd be like, yo, you look like the Unabomber. That wins for me. Unabomber. I can't argue that. I, can't, I, I think it is a big deal. I don't know if it, if it trumps the hurrah, though, thing. I mean, come on. That's 30 million people. But <laughs> at the same time, you're right. Like, people still talk but about But see, like, we're talking true crime like true crime and like that Geraldo thing while very spectacular and very like cool. Is it like true crime? I feel like you don't, well, yeah, I feel like it's about Al Capone, man. But it's I mean, like, like I feel like it's a gangster. Rehash, of the time. Right. So it's like the Unabomber is actually really scary and like real crime. And I don't know. It's not that it's like newer or older. It's just, I think it is because like Unabomber is more fresh and people still remember it. So yeah, because it was only 15 years ago. So. Yeah. What, what did I say? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> 25. I don't know what year it is. That was the best. <laughs> yeah, it is the best. Me and Kawhi Leonard bringing titles north of the border. <laughs> Look at this guy. He just gets to swoop in, play one match with like the worst fucking topic that Mark can pick, and take the fucking title. Yeah. I feel like I just lost fucking belt on a Sunday night heat episode. Oh, <laughs> oh. See, I'm telling you something, guys. I mean, true crime for me is it's just it's just not something that I think about because I deal in a world of fantasy. And I mean, like, true crime is actually scary. You know, like Harvest of Horror and like these early novels like are truly scary. Like it's it's a total phenomenon, you know, where people are actually interested in like how people die. And these monsters that make them die. So I've chosen like multi- multiple sides, obviously, because it was a pretty close race. But like, I think it's more scary when like it's further away. You know, I yeah. think people p- people resonate with stuff that's like further away, and like Al Capone and uh, John Gotti and stuff like that. Like, that's that's like old crime. And then you have stuff like John Benet Ramsey and. Uh, the Unabomber and OJ Simpson. And it's like, that is those people like either killed people or were killed. And we still are talking about it and it makes a really big resonance. Let, let me just ask you this last question. I mean, it's already decided, but out of all the ones that were uh, given to you, is the Zodiac not the most fucked up one out of all of them? It's scariest because it's not solved. You know, and I think, right. like, JonBenet Ramsey is not solved, right? But I think, like, yeah. they have prolonged that for reasons. What if it was the Zodiac? What if it was? Yeah, he, he would have wrote a letter. Yeah. What the hell kind of Twilight Zone are we living in? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what, what, it, it's all possible. And I mean, I think, like, I loved coming on to this true crime kind of conversation because it's like, I, I, you know, dwell in, like, fantasy and all that kind of stuff. But, like... True crime is really scary. You know, I think that's where all those murderinos and all this huge fan following comes from is like, this stuff is real. And it's actually really scary. Like Jerry Springer was 
believed by a lot of people for a long time. Geraldo was believed by people for a long time. The only legit thing he ever did was uh, Al Capone's vault. I mean, maybe it might be. <laughs> I mean, that's why he drank tequila. That's why he drank tequila for like four hours afterwards. I mean, like, maybe that was his breaking point, you know? Because it wasn't scripted. And I mean, like, I just think that that reality reflected is super important. I don't know, man. It's really scary. Like, Ted Bundy, Pogo, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, all very, very scary figures in our world. Yeah. Yeah, it's scary because it's true. That's the line between fact and fantasy. And I think so many people today are obsessed with this darker side and they take that for entertainment. I mean, true crime is such a big topic these days. I was t I was talking to Man Crush the other day and I just realized at some point in the 80s, we used to make movies about people who had lives way more fun than ours. And now we just make movies about people who have lives way more fucked up than ours. You know, it's, sure. it's a difference between escapes and entrapments. And I think like people are more interested in the drama of it. That's why Geraldo was so famous for such a long time because he was a talk show that helped propel people's interest in the macabre. Right. I mean, going into a vault on live TV is very macabre. Any way you slice it, you're trying to look at dead people. Yeah. You're trying to look at dead people's history. But I mean, like, if you do it on a TV movie, like Mark Harmon was trying to do, it's kind of fantasy. And that's why he did it. And that's why he did summer school, because he was just trying to act. <laughs> you know what the most you, you brought up fantasy a lot in this. And I think now it's really tying together for me because this is not our wheelhouse. I mean, this is not what we do normally. So when I'm reading this stuff and for the first time I'm reading it and I'm seeing that these guys, you know, they might have killed you know, three or four people proven to kill three or four people, but in their heads, they're saying that they've killed hundreds right. They've killed, you know, 10, 20, 50. That's even scarier because you don't even know what the truth is. Well, I mean, that's because why they I don't Zodiac know the killer. Is. I mean, I wanted to choose something else, but honestly, Zodiac killer is the most frightening thing there in that choice. It's like he created a completely different language that, high ass professionals cannot decipher mm -hmm. and it's still unsolved. And I mean, like 37 people is a lot of people. 50 is more. I mean, that's really scary, yeah. you know, and yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it happens nice. all the time, but like to be publicized like that, like why would you choose to publicize something like that? Even if you can't solve it, like, do you think like the FBI chooses what they publicize? Do they choose oh, what, for, what, I, for what, sure. like what is made into a TV movie? I think there's a lot that we don't know about. Oh, absolutely. For sure. mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. That, that would make our freaking hair just stand up on end. Yeah. The hairs on the oh. back of our neck curl and shit like our pubes just because <laughs> they don't want to tell us because that's what will happen. You know, so they only give us certain people, the people that they don't give us. A lot of low budget movies take on to those smaller like phenomenons of, of death where they're like. I'm going to make a movie about this and it could be based on Henry Lucas. It could be based on Pogo, but they don't say it like the sadist. Right. Like what's that based on? Does anybody know? But that is a really scary movie. And I mean, like the time it came out and everything like it's, what are people prepared for and how do you package it? And I think like true crime definitely holds a mirror up to all fantasy and horror fans. It's like, 
what are you really looking at? And I think it's really cool. So I appreciate the time tonight. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on and uh, letting me lose my first match. <laughs> I, I, i'm sorry i'm sorry I, nah, I, I it's, it's all good it I was, you know what i did my best it was coming it was coming and you know as i was doing this one like i said it this is so out of our wheelhouse and like just doing this episode and the tone of this episode and everything we try to make it light so don't think we're trying to make fun of these situations no. we just don't know how to handle reading shit <laughs> like this or like yeah. researching yeah people if that you don't laugh you'll cry shit you know yeah i mean that's a complete yeah, it's, it's a complete aspect of horror movies i mean it's a complete fantasy that escapes you from reality and when you bring reality into it it makes it a lot harder it makes it a lot more visceral and that's why i chose henry the portrait of a serial killer because that movie is important in that time to transfer people from fantasy into actually this is a real thing here you go and that's why they cut it you know it's a totally different thing yeah, that's why like when when Jaws came out, people were like, oh, I'm afraid to take a bath. But when something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer came out, they're locking their doors, double locking their doors, buying a gun, yeah. <laughs> you know, because that that's a real fear. Yeah. yeah, you watch that movie and you're like, uh, I'm going to have a hard time going to sleep tonight. And I think that's really important. <laughs> All right, so the 90s win this one. Congratulations to the new dueling decades champion, Joe Finley. Joe, tell people where they can listen to you and take a victory lap. Why don't you? Okay, no, I'm not going to run. I'm not in that good a shape yet. Uh, but <laughs> we're going to. Um, but you can find me, as always, on Miscast Commentary, anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, you can find us on miscastcommentary.com as well. You can find all of our content there, plus blogs and everything else. Uh, find me on Twitter. I'm at JK Finley. The podcast is at Miscast Podcast. And we've got a YouTube page where we also do. Uh, miscast TV, which is just sketches and, you know, some chat stuff and, and the like. And thanks a lot to Josh from lunch meat VHS. Josh, once again, tell people where they can find you and the type of content you offer on your site. Lunchmeatvhs.com, lunchmeat VHS on all social media. It's complete VHS appreciation, celebration and preservation. Anything that has to do with VHS culture, we're trying to preserve it and celebrate it. All right, so we'll end this episode right here, Duelers. Thanks for listening. If you've missed a past episode, you can always go back on our website, DuelingDecades.com. You can listen to all the episodes there and also subscribe on iTunes and on CastBox. And then after you listen to the episode, cruise on over to Facebook.com forward slash DuelingDecades where you can join in the conversation for yourself. So until next time, fellow duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Sleep well, everybody. Infirmary Media.